0: Will you pray with me? Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? May we behold the beauty and the glory of you this morning. God, and as we see Jesus in your word, may we become changed. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So back in 2018, in response to a popular song that came out that year, there began trending on social media this hashtag, hashtag live your best life. Now, if you don't know what a hashtag is, you can find one of my high school students after, and they'll be happy to explain it to you. But essentially, a hashtag is a way to link together posts that have the same idea. And the idea behind this hashtag was that everybody should be out living their life in a way that helps them to reach the highest level of self-satisfaction. It was all about self-growth, self-awareness, and self-fulfillment. And there's been millions and millions of posts with this hashtag. So some examples of this hashtag would be, you take a picture of yourself on the beach, you have the perfect sunset in the background, hashtag live your best life. Or maybe you're in the front row of the concert of your dreams. Hashtag, live your best life. Or maybe you go to that dream vacation spot that everybody wants to go to. Hashtag, live your best life. Now, ironically, it didn't take very long for there to become a lot of pushback against this trend. People clearly recognized how shallow and superficial it had become. It was just simply people trying to one-up each other with experiences that they thought other people would find desirable. But you know, even in its best sense, this hashtag represents our culture's view that the best type of life that you can live is all about yourself. But let me ask you, as followers of Jesus, what does it look like for us to live our best life? How do we as Christians define the best way to live? When in the passage of 1 Peter I wanna to go to this morning, Peter's gonna describe for us what a life of blessing looks like. And we're gonna see that this life of blessing ultimately is the best type of life that we as humans were created for. But it actually stands in opposition to our culture's view. While our culture is all about self, Peter's gonna call us to submission. And the question for us becomes, which of these two views have we bought into? So open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me. Leading up to the passage we're going to look at this morning, Peter has just given specific instructions to his readers on how to submit in several key areas of life. He's addressed citizens as it relates to governing authorities. He's addressed slaves and masters. And he's addressed husbands and wives. And now Peter kind of wraps up this topic of submission by addressing all believers. So even if you don't fall into any of those previous categories, he says that this is how you, the people of God, should be living. Let's read together verses 8 through 12. It says this. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, And do good, they must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the way that Peter begins to address all believers is by instructing them to be these five different qualities, and notice he says to be these things and not simply to just do them. He's saying that in light of your new birth in Christ, this is the type of people, this is the type of community that you ought to be. You know, I think oftentimes in scripture, when we come to a list like this, it can be really easy for us to read it, to recognize the words and the general concepts, but then to quickly move past it without really thinking about the implications of what this is calling us to be. You know, it's not just some randomly thrown together list of qualities. Peter's actually using a lot of intentionality here. And one thing that helps us to see the emphasis Peter is making is the structure that he uses in this list. You know, Peter's using what we call this chiastic structure. And what it does, it's a literary device that uses a mirroring technique that helps draw our attention in to a central focus. So let's see how Peter does this. I'll have slides that go along with it and it will help you to visualize it. So the first quality that Peter calls us to and the last quality that Peter calls us to are both related to this idea of submission in the way that we think. So the first quality is to be like-minded. And this is the idea of harmony and unity of mind. But we shouldn't think that what Peter is saying here is that we all have to think the exact same on every single issue or that people can't have different opinions or that people can't have different preferences, right? That's not what Peter is saying. In fact, I would say that it would be a disservice to the body of Christ to claim everyone has to think the exact same, because God has called together a group of people with different experiences and different viewpoints and different perspectives that can uniquely contribute to the body of Christ. But what Peter is calling us to is a way of thinking that puts the concerns of others before ourselves. It's a unity of goals and purpose. It's a shared focus on the essential things of life and faith, who God is, how we relate to him, how we live out our calling of Christ in this world. It's the way that the early church is described in Acts chapter four as being of one heart and mind. You know, it's okay that I cheer for the blue guys and you cheer for the green guys, right? Even even if the blue guys are allegedly cheaters. (laughs) It's okay if some people prefer to worship in song with one style of music and other people prefer a different style. It's okay if everyone dresses a little different on Sunday mornings, but you know what's not okay? If any of those things create division among us. Peter's calling us to a type of disposition where we will gladly defer on any preference or opinion for the sake and the care of others. So then the fifth quality we see us call us us to is this humility, to be humble. But you know, in the Greek, it's very obvious the type of humility he's referring to um, is related to the way that we think, which is why I think the ESV most accurately translates it as humility in thought or humble-minded. And this is a way of thinking that puts pride to death. This is a way of thinking that puts the interests of others before ourselves. It's a way of thinking that understands we are completely and utterly dependent on God for all things. You know, I think Paul gives us a really good picture of what these two things together look like in Philippians 2. This is what he tells the Philippians. Therefore, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So how do we be like-minded and humble-minded? We have to be Christ-minded. And we see that every single one of the qualities Peter is calling us to, Jesus modeled perfectly before us. So as we move one layer deeper, we go from submission in the way we think to submission in our feeling or emotions. So the second quality Peter calls us to is to be sympathetic. And this is the idea that we're able to feel what others are feeling. It's the ability to enter into the emotional experience of another person, to see when the ones we love are hurting and to hurt with them, to mourn with those who are mourning but also to rejoice and be glad with those who are rejoicing. It's a like-mindedness of emotion. It's the same idea we see in Hebrews 4.15 when Jesus is described as our high priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness. He knows what we're feeling because he has felt the same thing. And now we are called to feel with others in the same way. Then the corresponding fourth quality is to be compassionate and it's that Greek word that represents our most inward body parts and it's drawing on this idea that our deepest feelings and affections, they flow out of the depths of us. It's a tenderheartedness and a sensitivity to the needs of others. It's the way that the gospels describe Jesus when they say he was moved with compassion. I like the way Ed Welch describes how this should practically look in our care for others when he says this. When your compassion is aroused, say something. What happened is too important for you to remain silent. Suffering isolates and our silence isolates even more. Compassionate words draw sufferers into fellowship. Our compassion should move us close to those who are hurting even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when we don't think we know the perfect thing to say. You know, this idea of submission in the way that we feel, I think it's a little bit more foreign, a little bit more challenging for us. I think it's easier to see how we're able to submit in the way that we think, but how do we submit in the way that we feel? Do we have control over our feelings? What if I am someone that would say, you know, I just don't have these type of feelings. I just don't feel in that kind of way. Is it right that God would command us to feel a certain way? You know, those are pretty complex questions, but they're important questions. And I think it's really important for us as Christians to have a theology of emotions or basically to know what we believe about the way that we feel. You know, we live in a culture that's pretty terrible at handling and understanding emotions, don't we? So it's even more important that what we believe about emotions comes from what God's word says about them. You know, to help you develop a basic theology of emotion, let me recommend you the book Untangling Emotions by Alistair Groves and Winston Smith. This book is a tremendous resource for just helping you start to think about questions like, Why do we have the emotions that we do? What is their purpose? How do we understand them? How do we engage them? We actually have this book available for you in the library. You know, if you haven't been to the library lately, I really would encourage you to go and check it out. We have so many great resources. David Anderson has done an incredible job in there. So go spend some time in there. But on a very basic level, this is what I want you to understand about emotions this morning. Our emotions are God-given gifts. And He has designed them with purpose. And that purpose is deeply tied into how we love Him and how we love others. And one of the things our emotions does is it reveals what's really important in our lives. The authors of Untangling Emotions says it like this: what you care about shapes what you feel. Your emotions are always expressing the things you love, value, and treasure, whether you understand them or not. So if our emotions are revealing our greatest loves and values, how are we cultivating sympathy and compassion in the way that we submit within the body of Christ? And, you know, having that view of emotions, it helps us to see how logical it is that Peter then moves from submission in the way that we feel to a central focus of submission and love. And the type of love that Peter's referring to here, it's that familial, brotherly love that calls us to see each other as close family. Calvin says it like this, where God is known as father There and only there, brotherhood really exists. Jesus is the older brother who brings us into the family and he makes us like himself. Because we have the same father, because we have experienced the same new birth, because we are co-heirs with Christ, deeply love one another as family. Everything that Peter is calling us to in this verse is pointing to the central focus of love. You know, it's the very way that Jesus himself said people should be able to identify his followers by the way that they love. But you know, I think sometimes we use this familial language in the church, but don't necessarily have the same type of familial priority. You know, we say things like, this is my church family, This is my brother, Neil, or these are my sisters in Christ. But what type of priority does this family have in our lives? You know, we're starting to enter into the Christmas Advent season. And for so many people, this will be a great time of the year filled with family gatherings, continuing traditions, making new memories. But you know, for others, this time of the year will be a a painful reminder of things that are lost, things that are missing, things they just never had. You know, six years ago on the day after Thanksgiving, we found out my brother had died. He had struggled with addiction for most of his adult life, and he ultimately lost that battle. And now every year on Thanksgiving, my mother just struggles so deeply with that loss. It's this constant reminder that in this life, she'll never see him again. But you know the thing that brings my mom the most comfort that time of the year? It's when family gathers close. Church, will we be the type of family that gathers close to those who are hurting? You know, when I look at the type of people, the type of community that Peter is calling us to be, I see a community where people are cared for well, where people who are hurting are comforted, where people who are feeling hopeless are reminded of hope, and when people who are unloved by this world can experience something different. Is that the type of community we have here? Is that the type of community that South Church is? Are we fully submitted to each other in love? Now, How do we know that? How do, we, how do we know if we're living up to the standard? What would that look like? And if not, where would we start? You know, those are really tough questions. And you know, as pastors, we oftentimes hear from people who, when they're frustrated or disappointed when they don't find this type of community in the church. You know, so maybe we just start with, Lord, help. Lord, help us to be this type of community. We confess that because of our sin and because of our selfishness, we can't do this on our own. This is beyond us. But by your spirit, Lord, create in us this type of people. You know, because the next thing that Peter calls us to, it's one of the most difficult calls of all of Christianity. Peter says, you are to be this type of people and this is to be your response to evil. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. We live in a world where we are foreigners and exiles and evil is all around us. We experience it both in people's actions and in their words. And we have a response that comes so natural to us, don't we? We retaliate. Somebody pushes us, we're going to punch them back. Somebody tears us down, we'll destroy them. Somebody offends us, we're going to get them back in full measure. No one has to teach us that. We just instinctively know. You know, as the parent of a three and six-year-old, I get to see this type of evil play out in these little microcosms all the time, right? Somebody takes a toy, what happens? They're taken back too. Somebody pushes, they're getting pushed back even harder. Right, somebody yells, the other one can yell even louder. But you know, those seeds of sin and selfishness, they just continue to grow and grow, don't they? And the effects of sin and death and trauma come close, and it leaves us hurting and broken. And for all of those who have experienced the new birth in Christ, are called to a new response. One commentator says it like this, the natural tendency is to return evil for evil in full measure or more. Thus, evil is only multiplied. To break the vicious chain, someone must voluntarily endure evil without retaliation. When confronted with even the worst kind of evils in this world, we have a calling. And the calling is not just to refrain from responding with evil, but the calling is actually to take a a step further and to actually respond with blessing. But you know, what what does Peter mean by blessing here? Well, ultimately, it's this idea of wanting good for someone. It means you hurt me, but I don't want to hurt you. You may have wronged me, but I want you to experience what it feels like to be forgiven. It's unnatural. It goes against everything that we think is right. And it requires full submission to the example of Christ who came before us. Look at what Peter said just a chapter before this in verses 20 and 21 of chapter two. It says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Our calling is grounded in the fact that Jesus himself broke the cycle of evil when he suffered for us. This is that idea of substitutionary atonement, that when he deserved nothing but good, wrath was poured out on him. So that now us, the doers of evil, can experience the goodness of God. Now, because we have experienced the goodness of God, we can follow in Jesus' example that he set before us. In light of the hostility of this world, Peter says, the way that you inherit the blessing is directly tied to the way that you bless others. So it becomes our deepest prayer and our deepest desire that the people who this world says we should hate would experience the same undeserved goodness of God that we have. I love how John Piper puts it when he says this, you will not return evil for evil because the greatest hope of your life is that God will not return your evil for evil, but you will bless those who insult you because the future blessing that you embrace as your treasure, and bank on as your hope, and find satisfaction in, is precisely that kind of gracious blessing. Because of the blessing that's in store for us, it's now our obligation to extend that blessing to others. And you know, Peter no doubt fully understands the weight of what he's calling us to here. That's why he then gives us this beautiful picture for motivation. He quotes an adaptation of Psalm 34. And he opens that quote with this desire that just comes so naturally for us. He says, for whoever would love life and see good days. Who doesn't want that? You know, when this world is chasing after that best life, that's what they're looking for. Right? They're looking for a love for life and for good days. But Peter would define good days and a love for life very different from our culture. The love that Peter's talking about here, it's not about chasing some elusive level of self-fulfillment. And when he says good days, he's saying in spite of a world that is filled with evil and hostility, that these days are filled with so much meaning and purpose, they have an impact that is everlasting. These good days are pointing us ahead to more good days when we will be in glory with Jesus. But it does require that we act a certain way. Peter says they must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. It's a call that we both speak and act in a way that's different than this world. It's a turning from evil to actively doing good and pursuing peace. And you know, the way that he tells us to seek and pursue peace, it reminds us how elusive peace can often be, right? But we have to do whatever it takes to obtain it. Then Peter closes with the greatest motivation that we have for pursuing righteousness. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you suffer for doing good? Are you surrounded by evil and hostility? The Lord sees, the Lord hears when you cry out to him. The Lord is near the righteous. A little later in the Psalm, David goes on to say, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. But he is against those who do evil. That's why as his people, our response to evil has to be different. You know, for most of the Psalms, we don't get to know a lot of the context surrounding the specific details in which the psalmist wrote, but Psalm 34 is actually different. We actually have this subscript that says, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. And what that tells us is that this Psalm was written during one of the most difficult times of David's life. David's on the run from King Saul, who is actively seeking to do him evil. And David actually resorts to fleeing to the land of his enemies. But it's in the land of his enemies that David still experiences the deliverance and the goodness of God. And Peter wants to remind us that the same thing is true for us as well. Though we are foreigners and exiles in this world we do experience the deliverance and the goodness of God. You know, it's really interesting. If you look at the way that Peter quotes verse 16 of Psalm 34, you notice he intentionally leaves out the second half of that verse. So in the Psalm, it says, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. And I think Peter's intentionality in leaving out the second half of that verse, it reminds us again that for those who have experienced the deliverance and the goodness of God, it is not our desire that those who do evil would perish, but it's our desire that those who do evil would experience the same mercy and forgiveness that we have. You know, God has so mercifully allowed us now to live in the age of grace, to live at the time where there is no evil too great for the saving work of the cross. Have you experienced this type of forgiveness? Have you allowed Jesus to take your evil upon himself? You know, the call to follow Jesus, it isn't an easy one, but it really is the best type of life that we as humans were created for. Church, may we be a type of community whose submission and love would lead each other closer to Jesus. Might we respond to evil in such a way that those who seek to do us harm would ultimately be led to their good. And might we do and be these things because we are the people of God who have tasted his goodness. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the time in your word this morning. God, and we do confess that the people you've called us to be, we have too often fallen short of. That because of our own sin and selfishness, God, we have turned away from your good plan for our lives. But we are so thankful for your goodness and your deliverance. God, your grace and your mercy in our lives. So we We beseech you, Lord, might you make us the type of people that loves and cares for each other so deeply. God, as we we are entering into this time of the year where there will be a lot of um, activities and celebration and um, time with family, but God, remind us that there are those among us who are hurting, who don't have the things that many of us do how will we care for those people during this time? God, by your spirit, continue to mold and shape us into who you've called us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.